Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study leadership and strategy in artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, and analytics. My name is Felipe Flores. I am a data science executive with almost 20 years experience in the field. I am also your host for this podcast. Thank you so much for joining in today. Our guest today is Max Sklar. Max is the Engineering and Innovation Labs Advisor at Foursquare, and he also has a podcast called Local Max Radio. Definitely recommend you listen to The Local Maximum by Max, a really great podcast. So Max in the past has been a machine learning engineer. He's been adjunct professor at New York University. He's set up his own business. He's been a technology consultant, software engineer. You'll see he's a I think extremely intelligent and talented professional and he has a real passion for innovation and for teaching and helping and you'll see the, both of those traits come through really strongly in our conversation. It was a pleasure to speak with Max, get an insight on himself, his career, also what's happening at Foursquare. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here's the episode with Max Sklar. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Max. Max, thanks so much for being on the show. How are you doing today? I am great, all things considered, but uh, thank you so much for having me. Currently in lockdown. No, I appreciate you making the Pretty time. Pretty much. I, yeah, I think we're about to go into lockdown in Australia very shortly. I expect yeah. it um, to be next week at the latest. Well, fortunately, one of the things that we can do on lockdown is podcasting. So I know, right? How that, lucky are we? That is a positive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the right people right here. I'm so impressed with your background on software engineering and teaching and machine learning engineer, entrepreneur, everything. I wanted to ask you first, how did you get started? in the world of data? How did you get interested in it in the first place? And what was it that drew you in? Let's see, in the world of data, I graduated undergrad 2006, long time ago now, different world, particularly when it comes to here in New York City with a tech company. Had a degree in computer science, was just interested in it. It was so interdisciplinary, but data wasn't a thing. Although my first job out of college was working for a company called Wireless Generation. They're called Amplify now. And they were here in Brooklyn, actually. And they were what I would say like a data-based education company. It was taking assessment scores from young kids and trying to figure out what sort of instruction should we give which student in order to help them learn how to read and that sort of thing. And I don't know how their company's evolved in the last 10 years. But when I was working there, I didn't really get to work with the data itself that much. It was mostly making queries on a database, putting them on a dashboard, or something. And so my first three years uh, working as a software engineer, I was not having a very good time. It was a lot of like doing the same thing over and over again. So I didn't know what to do. I went to grad school. I went to, I enrolled at NYU and I took a program called Information Systems, which is half in the computer science department, half in the business school. It was a year and nine months. So I was like, I'll get in there. I'll get out of there. I'll learn some interesting stuff. But it gave me the space to kind of really think about the problems that I had been facing, whether at work or just thinking about in a in a much deeper way. And I started to take data mining class first in the business school. Then I went back to the Quran and I took machine learning. And the, the professor there was Jan LeCun, who a lot of people wow. know about. He's recently, and I didn't know who he was at the time. Yeah. And he gave us like this demo of his like deep learning camera. And he was like, hey, check out this camera. He Whatever he pointed at, if he like pointed at a paperclip, then like on the whiteboard, which is hooked up to his laptop, not the whiteboard, the uh, whatever, the screen, it would say paperclip. It would say doorknob. And I was like, holy crap. This is in 2010. What? um, It was magic. Yeah. I mean, he's had this stuff uh, for a while. 
So I really got into those types of problems. I really like the fact that they were open-ended problems. It wasn't just someone saying, hey, do the, run this query from a database and output the results. It was just actually yes. trying to make a prediction and not just trying to make a prediction, but in some cases, in the more complex cases, like trying to build a machine that learns. That's, I mean, that is yes. what machine learning is. That's the rule. And that's a very interesting problem when you dive into it. You kind of have to think clearly about what is knowledge? What does it mean to learn? from new data. And that got me, uh, it started me down the rabbit hole of Bayesian inference, which with, as I started on my podcast, Local Maximum, two years ago, I really went all the way into the rabbit hole, but I've been sliding down that rabbit hole for the last 10 years. So when I graduated, I thought it would be awesome to have a job in that. And so I joined Foursquare, which is location company. It was, I had a bunch of, I was also really interested in maps and I had a bunch of projects beforehand. So my undergrad project project was called Sticky Map, where people would post little icons all over the map and uh, leave little messages, like little wikis and things like that. And so Foursquare kind of combined that. We had like a mm. city guide type app. There was an app where people checked in to different locations and shared with their friends. These still exist. We're kind of working over the next couple months during COVID-19 to make sure that it says, hey, maybe you shouldn't be going out so much. <laughs> like we want to give people points <laughs> for staying in maybe, but I don't yes. know. Uh, but when the world is working, as usual, we like to give people points for going out and trying things. And so I was kind of tasked with building a recommender system for venues, for huh? restaurants and bars and things like that. So that combines the map interest with the data interest. And then I just, the rest is history. I just started diving into tons of problems at Foursquare, first slowly, then I did a little more, a little more, a little more. And then before I knew it, I had all these interesting problems under my belt that people like to hear about. And I like to talk about, sometimes I talk about them too much, but uh, no, it's been fascinating. Oh, <laughs> well, some people, is... I'm not talking here. <laughs> So I um, ask you first about, you can tell us a bit more about that first recommender system that you mentioned at Foursquare. Yeah. Some of the things that I started with was kind of playing around with the ranking. So if someone searches for pizza, how do we rank things from top to bottom? And so then we had the idea of, there were two things we wanted to do. First, we wanted to get a sense of how good a place was. And then we wanted to yeah. have the personalization aspect. It mm -hmm. turned out that the unpersonalized aspect of it, the just getting a global rating was a really difficult problem. We gave it to an intern in 2011 to do over the summer. And it turned out to be, well, this is way more than a summer project. And that intern, by the way, he was excellent. Like he, he would have done a very good job. But it was just like, holy, we were looking at this. We were like, holy crap, that is, this is a difficult problem. And it's difficult for a variety of reasons. First of all, at the time, Foursquare didn't have any explicit ratings. So people weren't giving them stars. But even we noticed in places like Yelp or Google, where you did have stars, everything kind of averaged out to three and a half stars. And yeah. then there was always the question of what do you do if there's a lot of ratings, but and a few people disliked it versus very few ratings, but 100% positive. And so we started thinking about all this. And one of the things that Foursquare had at the time was tips. Foursquare still has that if you download Foursquare City Guide. And these were like two or three sentences that people would write, usually either what to order at the place, but they were like mini reviews. And so the idea was to do some sentiment analysis on those tips to try to figure out whether what people are saying is positive or negative, and then using those as implicit ratings, which we found were actually 
actually better than the thumbs up, thumbs down signal. We use that as well, but the thumbs up, thumbs down is too easy to give a place a thumbs up. So it doesn't mean as much. No. The people who write something means a lot more. And then when we combine those together with some other scores, we got really good rating. And I'm very happy with the way that whole system performed all the way from sentiment analysis up to combining the scores to getting the real ratings. How we did the sentiment analysis is actually fascinating because it took a long time for it to get it to be accurate enough. We tried things that were trained on other data sets to start out mm-hmm. with. And this is around 2012 or so. And nice. it just wasn't working. The, the fun one that I always mention is there was one data set. It was trained on Twitter, I believe, or something like that. And the word wicked was given a negative sentiment. And so the worst place in uh-huh. New York City, according to this model, was the Gershwin Theater, which played the play, the production of Wicked. <laughs> and uh, I was just looking at these results of like top 10, bottom 10 in each neighborhood and just was not making any sense. But it was great. And then the way we finally cracked it was when Foursquare finally implemented a thumbs up, thumbs down. We uh-huh. looked at people who left an explicit rating as well as a tip. And so that got us a training data and lots of uh-huh. it. More than we can. It was hard. We were trying to label these. We were trying to go to mechanical turk. It was just people didn't know what to do because of a lot of gray area. And so Uh getting that labeled data set was amazing. And not only that, but we got a labeled data in all sorts of languages. In fact, we had like a model for 97 different languages just for free. And like I'd show people who spoke different languages, I'd show them, hey, here are the top 20 phrases and the bottom 20 phrases. It was essentially a elastic net logistic regression on the phrases. We did a regression on the phrases, n grams of four. And so we were looking, what are the positive, most positive phrases and most negative phrases in each language? And I would go to people with a different language and I'd be like, here's what the model says. Is this right? And for the most part, they'd be like, oh my God, that's right. Unless it's a language that's very unpopular. We don't have a lot of data for, but all yeah. the big ones we hit, which was like amazing. And it would, wow. it would get better over time. Now that was a long time ago, but uh, I'm really proud of that, that our rating system, it hasn't been worked on for a few years and it's held up pretty well. That is outstanding. And what was the difference in customer behavior once that went into production? Man, that was a long time ago. I don't know what the difference in like usage was. I know there was probably a test run of with the ratings, without the ratings, but we got a lot of very positive feedback from it. A lot of like critical success, like a lot of people saying, wow, this is amazing. It sounds fantastic. And there was something that you said before that that um, I found really interesting, and I think I wonder if it if it says a lot about you. You said that you'd like to work on open-ended problems, and that that's something that made you enjoy data science and machine learning, as as opposed to getting data, querying data from a database. But the fact that we have open source or open-ended problems is something you really enjoy. Yes, could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, I don't know. This is not something that is like very universal among engineers, I've found. Exactly. Um, That's why I wanted to ask. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, because a lot of engineers like saying, here's the spec and here's what we're going to build. And then if I know that I build this to spec, then I know that I did what I'm supposed to do. But Uh I like uh, exploring a little more. And machine learning is great for that. And data science research is great for that because you have a data set, you know, there could be insights from it. And you know you want to build a model and there's something that maybe you're tasked with, hey, figure out this hidden variable or something like that. There are tons of ways that you can go about it. And you have to kind of figure out, okay, what are the different ways I can go about it? Let's try a few ways, see what works. Let's let's try the simple way. Then we have to kind of figure out, 
like, hey, is it better for us now to get more data, to invest in our algorithm, to do something else? Maybe we're solving the wrong problem. I've seen problems, where, uh, issues where any three of those is true. It's not always true that getting more data is better. It's not mm -hmm. always true that improving your algorithm is better. It depends on the problem. And so sometimes I just enjoy that a lot more. And in fact, the role that I have right now at Foursquare is yes. very different. I'm not really doing machine learning right now. I'd like to return to that eventually. But now I'm kind of on the labs team and we're working on kind of experimental kind of fun apps that people can go out and play with and sort of showcase our technology. And again, that's more like, hey, we just have these crazy meetings. We're on the whiteboard. We're spitballing. We're saying, hey, what are we going to do today and tomorrow? We go back. We do it. We see where we're at. I would have thought that like everyone would be jumping to try to do this role, but um, mm. apparently it's not universal that uh, it's not fun for everybody. I think it's something that you and I share, which is uh, really interesting. Like the combination of business and innovation with machine learning, data science, and bringing those together. How has it been on the new role? It's been absolutely incredible because it's just been so much fun. This week has been a little shaky just because the product that we've been working on for the last six months, it's about walking around in the city and we've got to wait a little bit for that until this crisis is over. But um, it's just been a lot of fun going out and getting people to try this thing. We want, really want it to be, we're working on a new action in the Foursquare Technology Toolkit, which is trying to figure out when someone walks past a store. And then when someone mm -hmm. walks past a store or an establishment, we give them a little sound in their ear, in their AirPods. Mm -hmm. People can also upload MP3s that'll play, that'll trigger when other people walk past a certain area. And I am looking wow. forward to seeing how people, what kind of trouble people cause, first of all. Yes. Like, yes. you know, what kind of sounds are people, <laughs> what am I going to be hearing when I start walking around the city and people are uploading stuff? But also what kind of like innovation people are going to do with this. Like the one obvious one is like city tours. And mm. I feel like there could be some like art and theater students that do stuff with that. I don't know. But yes. it's just been exciting getting out and trying different things and um, getting things to work that no one has necessarily, not that no one in the world has tried before, but no one at our company has tried before. And also yes. the fact that I know at Foursquare, I was there for so long. I tried to escape at the beginning of last year. It didn't work out. I came back <laughs> six months later. But um, I know a lot of the stuff that's been built in the past. So I know what models we already have baked that we can kind of incorporate into what we have because we've been uh, like a data science shop for almost a decade now. And it's not like we have to start from scratch. It's like there's a ton of, sometimes they say there's a ton of bodies buried. There's a ton of like models and stuff lying around that yeah. you need to find and know how to surface. Yes. That's really interesting that you have been with the company for such a long time, basically eight years or just over eight years yeah. in total. In tech, there's usually sort of short tenures. So I wanted to ask you about your views on the benefits of long tenures and how you found your time of being there for over eight years and whether you see it as a positive and if so, why? Yeah, well, I mean, one is that I feel like I have a lot more roots, a lot more relationships with the people at the mm -hmm. company. We've been mm -hmm. through a lot together. I kind of know what makes the company tick with every company. There are good things. There are bad things. There are things that frustrate me with the organization, but I know what it is. And so it also, especially with some of the things that we're doing with ML data science, it's like you really need the space to work on something for a long period of time in order to get results. Now, my tenure at Foursquare has not been like all in the same team. It hasn't been like smooth yes. sailing just on one team. It's been a lot of, okay, maybe I'll try something else. And then now I find myself on a completely different team. Let's try this for a little while. This looks better than anything else that's out on the market. <laughs> mm, so yes. um, it's really interesting. We've had a lot of people come back 
my coworker, Miriam, who was the first guest on The Local Maximum on my podcast. She was guest. Yes. She was on episode number two. She was my first guest talking about internationalization. She left to go to Google. And then we all said goodbye. Then, then, then she was coming back to Foursquare, and then I was leaving. Now I come back, and we're like sitting next to each other. I'm like, I never thought that would happen. <laughs> I'm working with the founder of the company, Dennis Crowley, on Labs, wow. and he's he kind of stepped back as CEO, and he's like, you know what? Wow. Let's just work on these cool projects that showcase the future of technology. What we think is the future of technology, and kind of showcase Foursquare's tech stack. From like 2017 to 2018, it was a really interesting time where I had to focus a lot more on revenue. Now I don't. And that's why this current this current role is, is so great. I just have to focus on really making a splash in terms of using this technology and, and pushing it forward and dogfooding what other people are working on. But um, I don't know. It's When you have a company that's that complex, if you're only there for a few years, you don't really know that much about it. If you're there for a few years, there hasn't been en enough turnover yet. You're still kind of just taking tasks from whoever's above you, I think. But yes. it, it depends. I mean, that's a good point. And with the labs that you're in at the moment, when did that start? So it started officially a couple years ago. Back in 2016 or 2015 to 2016, I worked on like a proto lab, which uh -huh. was called Marsbot. Marsbot's like Foursquare's mascot. And yep. Marsbot's like this little character based on Foursquare's first designer that's in the apps. And so this was an app that we built where, and Foursquare was so largely a consumer company then, where you would download this app called Marsbot. It's kind of only works in the United States. You don't have to use the app. It's an app that you don't have to use, but it texts you. It learns where you go and then it texts you. It's done. And we built things into it where if you like walk into a cafe, it knows that you walked into a cafe and then it will text you. Hey, I see you're here. Here's the best oh. thing to order at this cafe. I know based on all the data. Wow. I've yeah. gotten for. I've gotten some like magical pings on that and you could kind of talk to it a little bit. And so again, in 2015, I had been working there for four years. I was kind of tired of what was going on on the job market a little bit. And then the CEO who was Dennis, the founder, who was currently replacing himself with someone else was like, mm. no, I want to do this little project. I want an engineer for this project to see if we can get my dream out. That was his dream. And I was like, I looked into this. I was like, I don't really understand what we're doing here. Here, but honestly, just doing something like this sounds awesome. And so I, I yeah. jumped at a chance. And again, I was surprised that other people weren't jumping at it. But yeah, we, we got that out in 2016. And then things got tough because the company mm. trans transitioned into enterprise company. And I sort of had to help with that a little bit, which is why I worked on ad attribution for a little while, which had its fun points. But yeah, then after a while, we were like, you know what? We really need a dedicated labs team. I'm just saying someone who's like officially on another team to get them over is not going to work organizationally. So yeah, it took a while, but uh, eventually Foursquare built back up to that. And then when I saw that the team was real and permanent, I was able to come back to that. They invited me back, which I'm so grateful for, uh, which I really needed. That, yeah, no, of course, that, that sounds like an amazing opportunity. I do want to ask you more about how the lab runs and how you pick projects. But just before yeah. that, a quick uh, sort of aside, you mentioned that the company went through this transition to becoming an enterprise. What triggered that transition? Was it the number of people, the revenues? 
was the projects? What led to that and how was that transition? Oh, yeah. I think that so Foursquare had some very iconic apps. There was the Foursquare Swarm app where people would check in and share the location with people. There was the Foursquare City Guide app. But a lot of people use them. I mean, there's a lot of like stock online, like Foursquare. Is that still a thing? But a lot of people still do use them. But it's not at the level of like Twitter and Facebook. And the revenues from those alone were not that high. But a bunch of people realized the data that we were collecting, which was all of location data and the Uh technology that we were developing, which Uh was taking the data from someone's phone and translating to that, no, you're at Starbucks now, is actually extremely valuable. And so what we need to do is instead of just using that on our own apps, we are going to, we're going to build an SDK and put it into Uh other apps throughout the internet. We're going to sell data insights. Very important to the company that they do it in a, in like an ethical way, like not uh-huh. selling individuals. Doing We kind of do roll-ups and things like that. I can talk a little bit about how attribution works, but um, it essentially was a business decision. I wasn't there making the decision. Yeah. So this is a little bit, take this with what it was, but I, I know the people who made the decision. So that's sort of how I would describe it. Yeah, no, fantastic. And can you tell us a, a little bit about the attribution side and then... Um... I didn't think I'd be interested on the enterprise side of things, but I was talking to some folks who worked on the team who were friends of mine. And I realized, hey, you have a really interesting problem here because you're trying to figure out companies are telling us, okay, these users, ad IDs saw our ads. How much is it actually causing people to go into our store? And the key word there is cause. Are these ads actually causing people to go into Mm. our store or are these people going anyway and we're just targeting the people who would have gone anyway? That is a really interesting problem. We were using some techniques from experiment, like grouping people together, pairing people with kind of similar people to see what they do, but it wasn't really scaling very much. We really needed a fuzzier model to figure out what someone would have done. And that's where a statistical machine learning model came in, where we take all the people who weren't exposed to the ads. We knew all of the features about them. We knew their ages, their genders, whether they visited that place in the past, whether they visited a coffee shop in the past, all these features. And we decided to say, hey, given this person's description, what is their likelihood of visiting? And then compare that to what actually happened to the people who saw the ad, all this Bayesian magic go in, and now all of a sudden we have ad lift. So that was a fascinating problem to work on. It was really interesting to see the times and places where it went wrong. And then on the business end, it was tough because from our point of view, we want to give companies the, we're the engineers. We want to make it as accurate as possible. But there were sometimes there were complaints like, oh, how could you tell me my ad isn't working type of a thing. And then of course, there were some legitimate complaints where it's like, why does this one seem off? This one doesn't, this looks like a wild answer compared to what the industry expects. And in some cases, maybe it was true. We were onto something. In other cases, it was just a wild answer because of the nature of the ad. Let me give you a few examples. Actually, Mm -hmm. a really good example was one where the ad was abysmal. It wasn't just didn't work, which is what I feel like maybe a quarter of the ads we saw didn't work, but it was like, no, people who saw that ad didn't go to the place afterwards. Like they're, they're, they're visiting. <laughs> so I'm like, how bad is this ad? You know, yeah. it turned out it was a coupon for getting haircuts given to people who just got a haircut and they were only measuring it for three weeks. So I'm sure it worked. You know, I'm sure it wasn't a bad ad, but 
of course they're not going to go get a haircut as common as, as a regular person. And there are, there are other things like that, like people traveling. I mean, the, the problem with causality, right, is always make sure that you don't consider as a confounder, as like a age and gender, as the, like the thing you're actually trying to measure, which uh -huh. is whether someone visited. So a good example was one of the confounders we used was location, like what city are you in? Because people in one city are likely to go to a particular chain than, than another city. It might not be in another city. But if the ad actually causes people to travel, like Disney ad or Six Flags ad, or I don't know what else you could have, a, a tourism ad, then you can't use that. So uh, yeah, it's a fascinating problem. And it's something that Foursquare still uses now. And now we've got a team of like 12 data scientists, PhDs, and I'm like, good, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. I'm going to step back. <laughs> you guys take over now. <laughs> Why do you love Bayesian imprints? What is it that attracted you to it and has kept you so interested for so long? I feel like it always comes up when I try to get to the heart of the problem that I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to me that it's not taught or maybe not focused yeah. on in, in high school or college, but even when I was in grad school and I was, I took my first course on this stuff on data mining for business applications. It was like a very business oriented class. It was, it was at the business school. So I was really good at that class because I could really handle the mathematics of that, whereas it was a class of business school. But um, I started thinking about the different problems around then. And I basically boiled it down to a problem. It's like, okay, let's suppose I have an ice cream shop in the East Village neighborhood here, and mm. I have lots of data there, and I'm pretty good at knowing the distribution of flavors that people order at that shop. Now, if I open up a new shop a mile down the road, do I have to gather all that data from scratch for that shop? Because there's probably going to be a different distribution there. Or do I assume it's going to be the same as the first one or some, uh -huh. somewhere? And the way probability and statistics is usually taught, there really is nothing to say about that problem. And then I realized that uh, you, you do have to make some assumptions. And then I realized that most problems in, in life are like that. When yeah. I was at Square, I looked at, okay, what do you do when you have a venue that has very few ratings associated with it? And the answer is like, you need a, a prior, you need a prior distribution. Uh -huh. Let's say you're trying to figure out the percentage of people that will like the place. It's not exactly what we're doing, but you need to have a prior probability distribution over, okay, maybe 0% of the people that will like the place, maybe 1%, maybe 2%. So it's a probability distribution function over that probability space uh -huh. that you want. And then you can update that. That's usually a beta distribution. And then you uh -huh. can update that as different ratings come in. And that was just a much better way of thinking about it, a much cleaner way of thinking about it than just putting out a number or even having a threshold of number of reviews. Like, yes, we still uh -huh. pick a threshold uh -huh. of number of reviews, but it's nice to know deep down that, okay, we have an opinion over where we think that ratio is. We did the same thing in uh, for attribution too. We were trying to measure the lift of the ad. Like this ad caused pe made people 10% more likely to visit your store. But on the back end, we didn't compute that directly. We didn't compute 10% more likely to visit the store. We computed a probability distribution over all the possible ad lifts. So it's over the support of that is all positive numbers where one is there was no lift and maybe 1.1 is 10%. So when we boiled it down to that way, now all of a sudden we come up with the median, we come up with the 95th percentile, the 5th percentile. We could show people, hey, look, 
up as more data is coming in, as we're measuring more and more, the bump in the curve is getting skinnier and narrower and you can Uh see it closing in. And so even though that's tough to describe probability distribution functions to maybe the end client sometimes, I find it's always good to have that on your side to be like, hey, this is how I organize my problem. And a lot of problems seem to boil down to that really well. And it it sort of um, alleviates a lot of the confusion that comes up with some of these problems. That's a really, really great explanation. I'm not a Bayesian at this point, but all the smartest people I know are Bayesian. Excuse me, I'm sorry. No, all good. And tell me about the, in your current work in the labs, how do you guys pick the innovations that you're going to try and the generation to the execution? How does that process work? Yeah, so that's a great question. So every month or so, we actually have kind of an open labs pitch day where people from across the company are invited to come in and pitch us ideas. I pitch my own idea every month. And usually it's something where we're probably not going to work on this, but we want to build our backlog. And some people have gone two or three times to kind of refresh their ideas. So we have our idea generation pipeline. Essentially, with MarsBot for AirPods that we're building right now, we evolve it over time. Like we started building one thing, then we said, okay, let's have it in the hands of a few people, a few people at the company. Let's figure out how this is going and let's come back and work on it a little bit more. But rather than setting in stone, this is what we're doing this sprint, we have a little wiggle room of trying things. I mean, that's one of the things that um, we noticed when working on this so far, and I'm excited to get this out into the public. It's not really well known to the, it's not quite public yet, but I think your podcast, I can tell your podcast listeners is okay. Like the sounds that people hear, we were using series for uh, text to voice for most of it. And we didn't think that actually playing MP3s would be a good idea. In retrospect, it seems until we tried it, we tried it one time and we walked by a Shake Shack. My voice came on and I said something dumb like, eh, Shake Shack probably has too much lines. It might be worth going something else. Then we walked back and it's like, oh my God, I hear it. And it was just really (laughs) exciting. And so we were like, okay, let's uh, let's build this in. And so I almost think of it as we kind of get showered in ideas. Essentially, we build the ones that keep coming up over and over again and the ones that keep getting proven to generate excitement. But again, we haven't got this product out yet. I was hoping to get it out this week. Maybe you'll, we'll, we'll see it towards more towards the end of the year now. But uh, I'm very excited about this. Maybe we'll be working on some data visualizations in the meantime because we do have a whole bunch of um, a big backlog now. Of course. And the pitch day, the monthly pitch day, how does that work? Is it an open forum or is it behind closed doors? Do people need to book in and pre-submit something? How does Uh, it work? It's got various degrees of open. So we had a very successful one in December where Mm -hmm. people from other cities were were all in in New York because we have the big end of the year party. And so we just kind of did it in our big cafeteria and people kind of got up on stage and gave us their three, four minute pitches. And I was emceeing and people talked about things like, how do you use location data to uh, stimulate urban renewal? Or how do we like, Uh you know, make a little game based on our data or things like that. I just found really interesting. And um, I want it to be very casual because I want people yeah. to share whatever idea they happen to have that month. But it's at work. And, you know, the people, they, they want to take it more seriously. And they're like, well, I don't have any slides. And people get a little shy to come up and uh, they feel like there, there could be a downside when there's really not. So one thing I want to try to do is try to figure out how to get people to loosen up a little bit. But I don't yes. know what the trick is there. Yeah, exactly. And then how are the ideas picked 
so I mean, those so far we haven't we haven't really done that yet because we've been working on yeah. Marsbot for AirPods the whole time. Yeah. I think we'll probably uh -huh. be doing it very soon. But um, mm. sometimes we do a little. Basically, if something comes up where you can do a little prototype in one or two days, then we'll do it. We'll see what it looks like. If it's a little more involved, then we'll say, okay, let's try to think of what what kind of prototypes we'll do. But I, I think we kind of have to get better at doing building a quicker turnaround time for that. And is that something that's encouraged for people to describe during the pitch to say? like this is the idea but this could be a prototype in a two day mm -hmm. no but that's a great idea i should make that more explicit i'm gonna write that down okay. yeah no. <laughs> <laughs> you're giving me a good idea okay i'm gonna put that down that is an excellent idea the other one that I was thinking about with your product at the moment is whether the sound, the MP3, has a set life that you can, or a, a yeah. amount of time that you can set? Yeah, I don't know exactly what's going to happen right now. I mean, we have it set so that you essentially can only hear it once. So once you hear it once, you're not going to hear it uh, many, many times yeah. in a row. Yeah. I feel like we're going to have to do something where like, you should have to subscribe to someone's feed, and then they can do something a little more permanent. Yeah. Like it's five seconds tops, but maybe if you subscribe to someone's feeds, maybe like I think of a comedian making a joke about if I'm walking by Cat's Deli here in New York City, maybe someone can make a joke about Cat's Deli. I want to subscribe to that. Then like um, I feel like we can let them go on for a minute or two. I don't know exactly how that would work. Well, that's the exciting part. Yeah. Tell me about The Local Maximum. Tell me about your, your podcast and how you got started. Oh, so much fun with The Local Maximum. I mean, I got started, I was actually on college radio as an undergrad. That was my extracurricular. And I would yes, go on every Friday and, yeah, and just talk about the news, talk about stuff that was going on campus. It wasn't an engineering podcast. It was just messing around on college radio was, was what it was. And nice. I still kind of bring that flavor into The Local Maximum a little bit. I try not to make it like too serious all the time. Sometimes it's very serious, but I try to be a little lighter sometimes because there's only so much people could take. But I was really looking for kind of a new side project to take on. And really, it's hard to code while you're main job is coding. And mm -hmm. I had tried blogging for a little while and it just didn't come mm -hmm. naturally. And then I was like, okay, I'm into podcasts. Let's just start a podcast. And it was just, it came a lot more naturally to me. I was able to pick it up every week. Sometimes a little stressful. I got to get one out this week, but it's not that bad. I just started with essentially interviewing my friends yeah. and I found out something about my friend, Aaron. He knows everything about everything pretty much I bring up. So he became my <laughs> co-host. And then I was essentially just interviewing people at work about what they do. So like I said before, when I started in 2018, I interviewed Miriam to talk about internationalization, how we translate in all the, all the languages. Then I spoke to Stephanie Yang, who worked with me on sentiment analysis. And we talked about sentiment analysis and ratings at Foursquare. Then I spoke to our founder, Dennis Crowley. Then I started branching out a little bit. I started talking to historians and pundits and authors and all sorts of people who come on the tech podcast. Whenever I have someone on, I try to kind of tie it in to what I've been talking about previously. I was like, no, you know, this, we're going to have a lot of fun here. It's going to be people who are, yes, it's going to be people who are in the tech industry, engineers, data scientists, and things like that. But it's also going to be people from the outside who mm. want to say, okay, how could you take a concept from machine learning or concept from engineering and kind of apply it to your everyday life or apply it to the news or apply it to current affairs okay. or something and um, just kind of enjoy ourselves and build a community. So that's sort of what uh, I've been doing about it. And it's also like, you know, hey, sometimes I go all the way down into like pure mathematics, like I did one on the nature of infinity. And sometimes uh -huh. I, I go all the way up to like 
What are the big tech companies up to? Is, is what they're doing legitimate? Is censorship a problem? What are the uh, theoretical ethical implications of some things to do, the business implications? So it kind of just runs the gamut, and that's what makes it a mm. lot of fun. That's fantastic. Yeah, and it's really interesting to see how it's evolved and getting historians in. That's amazing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I had two already. So the first one I had was, and I was really excited to get this person. His name is David Petruja, and he is, I think, one of the best-selling American authors on presidential elections. And he's like on the radio, on like the radio that millions of people listen to. He, he was a guest on that. And so I had met him previously, like many years ago, but I yeah. went to his event at the New York Public Library, and I got his book, and I asked him to come on. And I was very surprised that he said yes. He came to my office, and we decided, okay, like, yes, presidential elections, very interesting. But in order to tie it in, I started to say, okay, we talk a lot about changing technological landscape. We do a lot of future predictions. Where is technology going? So let's talk about how communications technology has developed over the last hundred years and how that mm. has affected our elections. And so he's talked about mm. that before, but hasn't actually talked that specifically from that angle, which is why I was very happy with the way that turned out. Well, that's something that I really enjoy about your approach is finding that unique angle with every guest. You have something that they either haven't thought of before or haven't considered in that light. And yet you're always able to get to that point. Do you do that on the fly? Is that preparation? I, I want to be able to do it more on the fly, but uh, I do a lot of preparation because for some people in particular, I actually get nervous when I have a guest on. Yeah, it's important that Sometimes it's unavoidable to ask a guest all the questions they've been asked before because your audience yeah. doesn't know doesn't Correct. know this guest. But when I get an opportunity, I want to say, okay, I don't want to ask them something completely out of left field that they're not going to be able to answer because or not going to be able to give me an answer because what's what's the use of that? But I want to try mm -hmm. to take a look at what they're talking about and take a look at what I'm talking about and try to find the frontier there and try to almost create new knowledge. Maybe that's going too far. Maybe it's just a new point of view on the existing knowledge, but try to make me a little better and try to make them a little better at the same time. If I could do that, that's a successful interview. Ball and it is working. So yeah, please continue. It's really, really good. Really appreciate it. Mate, I'm going to be respectful of your time. So before we wrap up, uh, where can uh, people find you online? Yeah, so the podcast, you could go to localmaxradio.com. You can go to the archive, get all the latest episodes and everything like that. Twitter, at Max Sklar localmaxradio at gmail.com to email me. That's a special email for the podcast. So I know that it's like people in the potiverse. I don't know if it's potiverse or potosphere that can contact me. But yeah, I'm very easy to find online. So yeah, just look up Max Sklar, the local maximum, and you should be good. Fantastic. Highly recommend the show. Max, thanks so much for taking the time, for sharing your journey, your perspectives. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you so much, Felipe. It's been a lot of fun for me too. Too kind. Thank you. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu.au.
I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubik's, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands, growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney and the US. Rubik's are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.